All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Let's get fired up here. <laughs> Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. My name is Daniel and my co-host is Robert and we are going to talk about Pulp Fiction one of his number one stunner movies. And you can find this at actualanarchy.com slash 39. How you doing, Robert? You know, apparently you've seen this movie more than I have, and yet it's my number one. Where does it rank on your list, Daniel-san? I don't play favorites. <laughs> yeah, you do. Fucking liar. Yeah, it's up there. It's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah, is it good? You liked it? I'm going to give the rating right now. It's black and gold for me, baby, all the way. Shit. You're not even going to... Wait till I destroy this movie and just tear it apart as a piece of shit. That's just the worst movie of all time. Let's bring it on. Bring it on. Oh, really? <laughs> so how you doing, man? How, how, it's been a while. How, how you been? We've been doing some pre-show for the Patreon peeps, talking about this show and the uh, special interview we got coming out. Yeah, the special interview. That's going to be some sort of... Uh, is that going to be a Patreon thing or what? Like a special episode or what? Uh, it's going to be a YouTube vid slash... Uh, article on the site and it's not going to be released the podcast version of course it is we it's going to be out actually yeah before the podcast so it's it's the Walter Block interview that came out yesterday everyone yay <laughs> yeah that was a really good one wasn't it everybody yeah that we haven't done yet <laughs> but we're it's on the it's on the books scheduled so it might happen it might not who knows we'll see yeah we think it will it's it's confirmed but you know shit happens yeah, so I'm doing great. I'm back over here on the east side. I am getting settled into the house. I just made, um, so I went and did my my big shopping for the winter. And if anybody doesn't know, I'm over here in this cabin and I'm kind of hibernating for the winter. And so I bought a bunch of groceries, like a lot of non-perishable stuff. And one of my choices this winter was curry. And so I just tried it out today, and it was uh, pretty damn good. It was definitely a success. I don't know about eating it as much as I bought. I bought enough for probably, uh, you know, several hundred servings. But, uh, you know, I like it, so we'll see. Oh, you got a lot of coconut milk in the cans because that goes well with that curry. Yeah, I bought not enough. I bought a, I bought like a dozen cans of coconut milk and it's not going to be nearly enough i didn't i didn't do the uh proportions properly but if i had i would have had to buy like probably like 50 cans of coconut milk oh that's what we do we go to a uh, place called cash and carry and they've got big cases mm -hmm. of it so we buy that mm, very nice there is uh not as much of uh, the cash and carry over here but i'll be able to purchase some as i need it they do right. have it here at stores there are things you have stores the over there? Exist. There's, there's, a, there's capitalism over there? You got that over there? Running water, toilets, capitalism, all that? God, I hope not. That sounds terrible. Free love, baby. Yeah, on your hippie commune. Yeah, we all live for each other. <laughs> <laughs> we share in the communal garden that works flawlessly, unlike you capitalists who don't know how to do it right. 
I know, it's capitalist pigs. All about the voluntary transactions. Man, so evil. Bunch of bullshit. Bunch of fucking bullshit exploiters. That's us. That's right. I'm an exploiter. I get exploited. I exploit. I offer money for goods and services that I desire. I provide services for a company that desires my services, and they give me money in exchange. Everything's terrible. Oh, man, it's the worst. Worstest. Is it normal for your ears to bleed? No, it's horrible. Welcome, welcome to the jungle. It gets worser every day. All those terrible things you said. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm going to wash my mouth out for soap. So I, I was going to mention to you that I bought yeah. a bunch more movies on the Voodoo service. Oh, shit. The addiction has really grabbed hold. You're really well, they do this dragon. thing, right? They do this thing. $5 yeah, movie. How, oh, I know. For like a list I know of how they hook, 50 movies. I know how they get their hooks in. <laughs> And I pick four or five out, you know. The first taste is free, Daniel. You know how it works. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a drug dealer, sure. But I did buy 1984. That's a good movie. I did buy Gattaca. No, it isn't. No, which one? The, the actual one that came out in 84? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the one with Big Brother. Yeah. You know, the, the famous one, the one that everyone plays in their mind when they think the movie 1984. Yeah, it's, it's real bad. It's just so slow. And gritty and grimy. I mean, it's it's very accurate, I think, to the book. But I tried to watch it one time. It's it was not. It wasn't, wasn't wasn't a good movie. I'll tell you what. You what read else? the book. Yeah. I'll I'll watch the movie and we'll do a show on it. I'm not going to read that propaganda. Much crap. Much of commie garbage or capitalist garbage. Either way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mentioned the, the voodoo thing because I am addicted. But then I also went to the beer store to get this this uh, fishtail ale that you liked. We got more of that. Yeah. And I also bought. DVDs, five for $10, and then scan them into my computer to get them into the Voodoo for $2 a piece. That was a good deal. What 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 movies? Uh, let's let's do the list. Hold on. Herbie Goes to Jail. Ernest Saves Christmas. Uh, we got The Strangers, which is a horror movie about people wearing creepy masks breaking into your house. Sounds got like a winner. Batman Gotham Knight, the cartoon version of the Batman. Hey, that's not terrible. Animal House. The Double Secret Probation Edition. Ooh, and it might actually be watchable. Office Space, which I've probably owned three different versions of this DVD. Uh, I purged a bunch of DVDs like five years ago when we were moving around a lot because we thought we were going to go to uh, another country, move move elsewhere. So we got rid of a bunch of stuff and ended up uh, not moving too far. So here we are, and now I have Office Space for the third time. But now it's in the voodoo. So all is right with the world. You can all go home, everybody. It's all good. That's right. And if you want to get in on, on this voodoo action, you can. Just click on the link on our tip jar page, actualanarchy.com slash tip jar. You'll see a link to voodoo, and you can get the app yourself. You can scan your DVDs or Blu-rays into the service and make them cloud uh, accessible on any device, including your television, tablet, phone, computer. And it's it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's one of those... Um, uh, someone posted a question on our... Uh, Facebook page, facebook.com slash actual anarchy. And they're, they, um, so, you know, like what, what's some of the good things that have happened in the last couple of years, capitalist wise. And I posted a GIF of this desk with uh, a fax machine, a computer and a TV and a, and a phone and a bunch of shit. Right. And it, um, cycles through time and the shit gets smaller and smaller and smaller and and certain things get eliminated and replaced and merged into one device so then the desk becomes very minimal minimalist and neat but it can still accomplish all of those things and much more and it's kind of cool indeed that is what 
The market does, baby. So I'll put that GIF on the show notes page for this episode, actualanarchy.com slash 39, full fiction, even though it's not related in any way to the movie. But why not? It's a, it's a cool GIF. Yeah, it's a cool GIF, man. Check it out. Dan's all about the GIFs. I will tell you that in the in the secret uh, Facebook chat, I have changed my name from the Archduke of Actual Anarchy to GIF Master Flash. Well, that is more appropriate because you <laughs> almost exclusively answer questions with GIFs that I've noticed. Which you would think would mean that I am not giving a whole lot of thought to what I'm responding, but that Correct. belies the truth. It, it really is like I am finding something that references something that speaks to much more and and interpreting it through the the art form of GIF. Well, one has to wonder how much time you spend finding so that perfect GIF when you could have just answered, like typed out an answer. All right, so I have to admit, there have been some times where I, I search for probably 10 minutes for a GIF. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for the perfect right. GIF. My wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, i got to find this GIF. i got to find this GIF. And she gets mad. Uh, sometimes they're super easy, easy to find, and it's boom, bam, thank you, ma'am. Uh, but it's, I don't know, it's it's probably what I'm known for in the Tom Woods group at this point and, and this show, the website and the show, yeah. but doing the gift thing. And I don't know if people like it or not, but, uh, it's your stick. I, it's, fine. it's my thing. It stands out. It, it makes me different from the crowd. And I, I really think it does convey a lot more message than just a block of text. Well, that's not true in all cases, but it is true in some cases. It's very, uh, sometimes I've seen you post a gift that is very appropriate and it does convey, I mean, you know, you recognize the movie, you recognize the actor, and you recognize the context in which it's happening in the GIF, and that informs the response. But at the same time, it's not quite a, uh, a, um, a replacement for a well-thought-out answer to a question. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but, if, you know, that's what other people are for. You can, you can answer with your GIF. And then there are a number of other people that can come in and actually answer the question. Yeah, I agree. And I'm, I'm more of the Hayekian muddler, puzzler type mind. So I don't have um, everything sort of figured out in my head, right? I, I need to sort of mull on things uh, to, to uh, determine what my stance on certain issues is. I try to be principled. But if I can find a gift that conveys the concept or the idea that's behind <laughs> my thinking, that's good enough for my contribution. Because you're right, there are a thousand other people in there, and they're some of the brightest people that I have encountered uh, in, I mean, it's cyberspace, right? It's like, I've never met any of these people, but I interact with many of them quite a bit. Uh, several are fans of the show. They're in our um, actual anarchy cadre, the island of sanity in the Facebook sea of uh, craziness, and also in our Rothbard Roundtable and, and uh, various other things that we work on. So I do have a lot of interaction with some of the folks in there, and I'm highly impressed with them. It's one of those things that keeps me coming back to Facebook in general because my normal feed of, of friends from, I almost call it a past life at this point, when I was living in Seattle and I was uh, downtown and I was shooting shows and hanging out with people, and they're all progressive leftists, and I have virtually nothing in common with any of them now except for this legacy link to, uh, via Facebook uh, because we friended each other, you know, eight, nine, ten years ago. Don't you think that, I mean, it's, I know I'm going to get a biased response and I would answer this biasedly also, of course, but doesn't it seem like the, the, the progressive leftist, that's just like the baseline and then you don't grow out of that? Or do you think that that's like a, a thing people can get reasoned into 
like they start out as a as a right winger and then they turn into a progressive left just through all the convincing arguments? Or do you think you just get emotionally invested in the left and then you just stay a leftist and then you're just the same all the time for decades? Uh, honestly, I think that it's easier to be a leftist because that is the consistent messaging you get from the culture, from media, movies, television, friends, friends, etc. And also, it's the easy answer. Like, there, there's a response for any question. Oh, just make a government program. Oh, send some money over there. Oh, tax the rich. Yeah, there's an easy answer. So it's a very shallow uh, level of thinking. And it ignores the consequences and the unseen. But it's easy to fall into this trap of seeing something that's a problem and addressing it. And you and I were guilty of this growing up. Uh, when we were left-leaning, it was like we were we would play basketball on your court and talk about the problems of the world and be like, well, there ought to be this or there ought to be that, and, and w- we could fix this or that. And it's very surface-level thinking, and it's well-intentioned. It, it, it has a good heart, I think, in a lot of cases, but it doesn't understand economic reality or consequences or perverse incentives or that if you can't do it, how can you give the authority for other people to do something. It doesn't make it moral or good and all the rest. I mean, the things that we have learned and advanced since that time. And, and so I think, I think I'm sort of offshooting from your point um, that we have introspectively uh, considered a lot of these questions and it found ourselves to be the libertarian slash anarchists that we are now through thinking these things uh, more thoroughly than most people do. Yeah, that was basically my point, is that we are constantly analyzing our beliefs and to see if they're internally consistent and discussing them, hopefully rationalizing them out, hashing them out. But I, I feel like the left just kind of has a set of emotional beliefs, and if you you know challenge them on that, they just react emotionally and they curl up in their little ball, and you're never going to reason them out of it because they'll just they see it as an emotional attack you're just being mean or something like that or you're not citing facts and then they you know escape and react and whatever it, i'm not really sure what my point is damn it <laughs> just uh shit you can cut this part out but um no, that's a good point my man good point are you yeah. on a cell phone prank caller prank caller <laughs> So let's get into this movie, shall we? It's Pulp Fiction, 1994, Quentin Tarantino. Super good stuff. I'm going to read the Google description and then we can get going. Unless you have something else you want to add before we... No, do it. Go. Let's do this. All right, Quentin Tarantino. 94% Rotten Tomatoes. Super fun film. Two hours and 58 minutes. Good Lord, really? Is it really three hours? That doesn't sound right. 58? No. It says 258 on the Google. So (laughs) there's our problem with the Google description already. Uh, so here we go. Vincent Vega and Jules Winfield, played by John Travolta and Sam Jackson, are hitmen with a penchant for philosophical discussions in this ultra-hip, multi-strand crime movie. Their storyline is interwoven with those of their boss, gangster Marcellus Wallace, his actress wife, Mia, struggling boxer, Butch Coolidge, master fixer, Winston Wolfe, and a nervous pair of armed robbers, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. And that is the uh, whole description, but I'll just list out, you know, Ving Rhames, is Marcellus, Uma Thurman is famously as Mia, Bruce Willis is the boxer, Butch Coolidge, Harvey Cartel is Winston Wolf, Tim Roth is Pumpkin, and Amanda Plummer is Honey Bunny. came out in October of 1994, and I don't see any box office information, but it did win some awards. The Palme d'Or, which I think is uh, something to do with uh, Cannes, right? France? Yeah, French? Yeah, that's Cannes. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the, the movie yeah, a bunch of uh, had awards, a, MTV movie award, etc. Blah blah blah. Yeah, so the movie was made on a shooting budget. Uh, I have here that is an eight point five million dollar budget, and it made I think I want to say it's like almost two hundred million. Maybe well, that's a, that's a big it big a, swing. It was a big score. Um, each of the primary actors, they all took pay cuts because it was made so cheaply. They were getting paid uh, per week, so they only made like twenty thousand dollars a week. But they, uh, the, the the principal characters had points on profit, so they ended up doing all right. Um, but yeah, this movie is interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, uh, Tarantino and his co-writer initially conceived of it as three different stories, and then um, I'm not sure exactly when, but at some point they that that um, three different stories that each of them would direct. Him oh, they did that with uh, the hotel one, right? Like shortly after. There were three different directors collaborating on a on a movie. Gosh. Yeah, Three Rooms, I think it was called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one. Yeah. Yeah, so, and then they also have done that with like Robert Rodriguez when they did um not exactly that, but when they did that whole grindhouse thing. Tarantino directed one and Rodriguez directed one. Uh Tarantino directed um Death Proof and Rodriguez directed um Planet Terror. So yeah, they've um they've been collaborative stuff. Um uh, Rodriguez actually directed one scene in Pulp Fiction. He directed the scene where um, Tarantino is um, helping out Jules and Vincent. When oh, as, as Jimmy? In his house. Yeah. <laughs> I know my fucking coffee's good. <laughs> That's I know right. who buys it. <laughs> I want to taste it. Yeah, nice. Funny by shit. So this movie is probably Tarantino's big break. I mean, Reservoir Dogs was before this, and it, it got a bit of a cult following, and it's very famous these days, but I think it pulls a lot of its gravitas from Pulp Fiction. And this is also a resurrection-type movie for Travolta. And, and even uh, Bruce Willis, in a way, I think. Yeah, so Travolta, I don't remember the last movie he had done before that, but he had a lull where he was doing, like, baby-talking movies and other kind of crap, and this really launched, relaunched his career. Uh, yeah, Willis, he had made, you know, you know Die Hard, and he'd made some other stuff, but I don't know, I think this gave him a little bit more cred, you know, like... Show off your acting chops. You're not just an action star, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, there's so many different things to talk about in this movie. But, I mean, this is one of my favorite of all time, probably my number one favorite movie of all time, um, primarily because primarily because of the dialogue and the structure and the acting. Um, this is a movie that very much trivializes serious things and makes serious trivial things. So you've got Jules and Vincent, and they're on their way to a hit. And they're talking about how serious this foot massage business is. And they're about to go in and murder some people. And when they go to murder some people, they don't just murder some people. they got to preach at them, kill them in, like, really cool ways. And then it's a movie that – how do I put this? Um, you know, there are key points in the movie where they just focus in on these little weird details. Um, and But then they kind of don't really – the characters never really um, – get super upset or blown out of proportion on like really hardcore things, I guess you could say. Um, except for, I guess, Marcellus and Butch in the rape scene and, you know, and then um, Vincent in the overdose situation. But um, it's very much just kind of like some blue collar guys going about their business and their business just happens to be killing people. Doing really, gangster they're just shit. <laughs> yeah, they're just gangsters doing gangster shit. I mean, this is like the normal day for them. So they're not really talking about, okay, what are we going to do? We're going to go in there, 
and you're going to run control, and I'm going to run this, and we're going to do this, and this is how we're going to do this. No, we're going to talk about, so what's, uh, what's the news? What's been happening? Oh, you know what they call a Big Mac in Paris? Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, they're just two professionals doing their job, and it's so second nature to them that they can just talk about stuff that's not even remotely associated with it. And in, usually in a movie that bothers me, it bothers me when a character doesn't see the danger in a situation and doesn't react to the danger in a situation. Like there's a part where Jules and Vincent are just killed a couple people and the guy bursts out of the door, out of the bathroom and unloads on them. And they just kind of stand there like dumbfounded. And then they wait and they look at each other after the guy runs out of bullets and they're like, huh, okay. And then they they turn and they kill him. But at no time did they ever duck, eyes get wide, dodge out of the way, pull their gun up in reaction. They very much, it's, 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 it's just super interesting for for this, but in in other movies, it really pisses me off when the characters don't react to danger in a believable way. So then there's tension. In this movie, there's really never. I don't even know if there's even any tension in the in the overdose situation. Maybe a little bit um, in the rape scene. There's probably some tension, but in a movie, this movie sub- plays with tension and subverts tension a lot. Like in the um, the honey bunny scene when they're robbing the the restaurant and they're the ones with the guns, but Jules is like so in control of that situation and he's not worried about this gun in his face at all he's like calm as fuck <laughs> he is beyond calm as fuck he is he's so fondly cool <laughs> yeah so as the audience you're like well there's no tension but it's also super cool and you it's it's almost fascinating that there isn't and normally it, it pisses me off that there, when there's no tension because then you don't have an emotional response to the the movie but it's a movie that really plays with expectation and that sort of thing. And uh, for me, when I, when I first seeing it, I mean, it just blew me away. So, um, yeah, I, re- I remember first seeing this in the theater and I remember I went to Everett and right when the, when Jules, I mean, Vincent first uh, shoots up, there was a, a father and he, he had like two young daughters and he like got up and walked out and I was like, okay, we're in for a good movie. <laughs> this is good. You got people walking out, but it's, it's funny that there are, I think there had already been a couple of murders at that point. Maybe not. Yeah, I think there is. I, I'm forgetting the timeline. But um, funny, the murders are okay, but the, the, the drug abuse, you, you can't stand the drug abuse. But anyway, Daniel, I'm sure you got some things to say. No, I think I was there with you because I recall that happening at that scene when he's driving the car, shooting up, and they show the close-up of the needle, and people did walk out. Mm-hmm. So I think you and I had went to see this movie together at that probably now defunct theater <laughs> near the Everett Mall. I do want to jump in because you did mention something that it was pretty interesting to me, and that was that they play off the tension um, as if they're such stone-cold killers that these things don't even affect them at all. Like, it's just so natural and so day-to-day to to them and mundane almost because they have specialized so much in, in what they do that when there's a gun pointed at them or even shots fired, they're just, whatever, that's part of our situation. You know, we're used to it, and... Uh, of course, Jules goes all like, what's the word, uh, spiritual or <laughs> uh, divine inspiration or, or philosophical about it. Yep. And he's like, oh, it's divine intervention. That's what saved us here. Uh, and there was one other point I, I wanted to bring up, but now I totally forgot it. So Sorry, buddy. good on me because you kept going for a while. But that's great because you have plenty of good things to say. Do you want to start talking about like specific scenes or start going into the, the time frame 
of telling the story. I mean, spoilers, of course, everyone's seen this movie a million times. Um, but do we want to start unpacking that? Because there is so much in this movie that I was almost afraid to do this one. It was almost, um, you know how we did the, the Batman movie with Shaheen in Australia, and there were just so many things to talk about that you didn't even know where to yeah. start, and you had to start picking like little like specific areas and be like, okay, we can talk about maybe 10% of the movie, and that'll be our show. Right. And I almost feel like that will be this. But I... I'd be surprised. I, I was, I mean, I'm sure we could talk about a lot of things because there are, you can approach this from many angles. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion online and other places all about this movie. I mean, this is one of those movies that everybody saw and very influential, kind of like the matrix where it's kind of one of those cultural keystone moments where everybody looks at this movie and it's like, wow, this is a brand new thing. What do we think about this thing? And, um, this is the kind of movie that, uh, film studies major is going to write his dissertation on and it's been done. So you can look back at those things and see what other people think. But yeah, they've really analyzed them for philosophical reasons and what they're, what they think Tarantino is trying to say. Um, it's, uh, it's the one I saw really analyzed the movie as a postmodernist deconstruction type of a movie because of the way it plays with story, the way it's non narrative, that's not linear. Um, now, how much Tarantino was really using it as a critique of modern storytelling or saying that, you know, in order to make an effective movie, you don't have to have it be chronological or even have a central main character. This is essentially three different stories Four, if you include honey bunny, but they all intersect. They do all intersect, but they are, they were originally written as three different stories that did intersect, but with three different protagonists, you got jewels, Vincent and Butch as the three main characters. And it's funny because only Travolta was nominated for Best Main Actor. And Jackson was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Even though I would argue that I think Jules is the more complete character and, the, and hence the more main character. Um, in Jules' storyline, starting out with the, uh, the assassination and the, um, the divine intervention... Jules actually has a character arc. He starts out as this cold, cold killer, stone cold killer, experiences like this act of what he believes to be divine intervention, and his character actually changes. At the end of the movie, he is a, he's a different person. He even says it right out, straight out. He says, you know, um, you know, normally when I said that, you'd be dead, and you would normally, you two would normally be dead, but you caught me on a weird day, and. That's the old me, and the new me is going to be walking the earth and having these adventures and whatnot. McCain. Whereas, yeah, exactly. Whereas Vincent, I'm hard-pressed to see any kind of growth, any kind of character development. I mean, he is a gangster at the beginning, and he's a gangster when he dies. Yeah, he dies a gangster. Even, yeah, he dies a gangster, and nothing really changes. I mean, he, he learns he needs to keep his heroin away from Mia, and that's about it. Hey, let me ask you on, on that one thing. So I've always thought that she f- misidentified it as Coke. Yeah, absolutely. That's why she's okay. it. Yeah. Um, and, th- and many of these people have pointed out that it's weird because something bad happens every time Vincent goes to the bathroom. So when he goes to the bathroom the first time, he, Mia snorts and gets high and ODs. The second time, um, Honey Bunny and what's-his-name robbed the place. And the third time, uh, he gets killed by Butch. I've never but, thought about uh, it that way, but yeah, that's that probably there's something there. Cause it's, <laughs> I mean, is Tarantino trying to say something? It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. I mean, it, it, it's kind of it seems kind of obvious to me that he was just he had to go take a shit 
in the restaurant scene because Tarantino wanted, you know, Jackson, Jules to have this moment with the bank robber where he couldn't have, you know, Travolta there. You wanted that one-on-one dialogue. But um, let's see here. Let's see here. What do I got? So anyway, uh, back to being a postmodern deconstruction of a movie. Um, well, before you jump in, I, I just want to mention that I feel like this movie set some precedents for other movies, including like Traffic and Memento, where Traffic was a, a multi-story narrative that crossed uh, by the end of the movie. Um, and it was like trying to be cute and, and play off of this type of um, setup, this narrative structure. But I don't think it played as, as well, even though it probably won some awards, but it's kind of a terrible movie. And then Memento, which was, of course, playing with the time, right? The time element uh, and, and creating a circular narrative where you um, learn more as they replay the, uh, the movie backwards almost. Um, I feel like that Nolan probably totally making this up, but he might have gotten some of his ideas for that, that style of storytelling from watching Pulp Fiction. Could be. I don't know. I haven't seen any... Um interviews where he says that directly, but, uh, you know, we're all, we're all children of or whatever influenced by the media that we see. Right. The culture that we see culture drives lots of things and it's hard to know what, what the rap game brings. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's hard to know if you're, if you're having an original idea or not, there's this, um, I forget the name of the term, but in comedy, um, like a comedian will tell a joke, like there's a famous situation where Louis C.K. told a joke like in 1993 or whatever. And then Dan Cook tells almost an identical joke like four years later. Did he steal the joke? Did he mean to steal the joke? There's actually a cognitive, um, I forget the term, and I'm not going to look it up, so don't ask me to, of uh, where you hear a thing and you learn a thing and you see a thing, and then you have an idea you know, later on, and it seems like it's your original idea. And as far as you know, that's your original idea. And so you go with it. And apparently there's a very good um, reason why that is, that your brain just goes with it as your own original idea, because otherwise you'd suffer like crippling doubt all the time and you just wouldn't ever do anything. I, is like this related that. to the idea of uh, the simultaneously, uh, simultaneous discovery of certain properties or certain inventions? Like you'll hear about that, like people across different continents are working on something and they all come up with the same idea really, really clustered together and it just so happens that one of them was the first to hit the patent office or become, you know, publicized in, in, in people knowing about it. So they'll often associate that person with the discovery, even if someone else actually predated them. Uh, an example would be, I don't know, like um, maybe Alexander Graham Bell. I, I think someone else had maybe come up with uh, a telephone concept prior to him. And it, I might be wrong on that. But uh, uh, Edison might be another like there were other people who had come up with a light bulb or AC and, and DC current uh, electricity-wise. I know Tesla was often um, cited as being someone who was overlooked and overseen, even though he had made some advances that might have predated some others who became famous for those same advances. Um, it's, it's, I, I know there's a term for it, but it's like almost like a simultaneous discovery, independent discovery. Yeah, I mean, there's a term in biology. I think it's like convergent evolution, something like that, or parallel evolution or something like that. Do you think this but, relates I mean, to the uh, the hundredth monkey thing where there, there's almost this, it's in the air almost? It's somewhat, but there's also communication and word gets around and they all go to the same kind of trade shows and not necessarily so much 150 years ago. But, right, but there's, there's some cross-pollination, right? Like famous people knew other famous people. Like 
a lot of the philosophers and inventors that we still know about today had rubbed elbows on some degree? Yeah, they rubbed elbows. And then they also, you know, you're talking about a smaller world back then. There were fewer people and fewer famous people, right? I mean, this is predating like Hollywood. And so, so the famous people of the world are probably politicians and inventors and authors. And you might know. And yeah, a lot of those people knew each other. Like, what's so-and-so working on? Oh, he's working on this right now. Oh, aren't you in the same field right now? Oh, you might want to talk to him or you want to read his papers or whatever. And, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's another example of this. Um, The discovery of marginal utility with Carl Menger was simultaneously discovered by, um, I believe, Jevons and um, uh, one other person in uh, Sweden, maybe. I'm totally missing the the name, but they all independently came to the same conclusion about marginal utility. Very nice. So anyway, this is all a side point. (laughs) Um, Talking about... uh, Back to the movie. Nolan Nolan and whether he was influenced by Pulp Fiction or not. Even if he was or wasn't, I mean, it's not super important. But anyway, okay. Well, Reservoir Dogs was a little bit like that too, right? uh, Reservoir Dogs played around, yeah, a little bit with uh, time and information given to the audience. Uh, speaking of Reservoir Dogs, uh, Vincent Vega is the brother of Vic Vega, played by Michael Madsen in Reservoir Dogs. And actually, Michael Madsen was supposed to play Vic, Vincent Vega, but he had other uh, obligations, um, so he couldn't do it. But uh, this movie absolutely takes place in the Tarantino-verse. Uh, Mia Wallace, talking about her Fox Force 5 show, um, directly parallels the characters in the Kill Bill series with the, uh, the assassins. Oh, the the one who's the good with knives and the one who does demolition, et cetera? Yep. Yes. All right, so I, I, I hate to jump in on you, but when you were here, you had Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. False. And I did not put them in, in my service because I was like, oh, there's six uh, movie set by Tarantino is $20 on sale right now, so I'll just buy that. I didn't do it. It's no longer on sale, and now it's $48. <laughs> <laughs> on the voodoo, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna buy it right now. Uh, I'll wait till it's on sale again. But that's the kind of thing that uh, I, I now wish I had put it in the service either at the two dollars to scan your DVDs or just bought the six movies. Even though I already had Kill Bill and I think I already have Reservoir Dogs, so it would have been four new movies for the twenty dollars, which still a good deal. So I should have done it. Click on our voodoo link on the tip jar page, everyone. <laughs> Back to you, Robert. So How's anyway. Back to you with sports, Robert. Yeah, so um, Pulp Fiction, if you hadn't noticed, um, plays around with uh, storytelling. And for that reason, it's seen as this like postmodern deconstruction of a movie, trying to play around with what a movie could be. And I know uh, Jordan Peterson's been talking about postmodernism. That's just the worst thing ever um, because it calls everything into question. I mean, like there's no real truth. It's sort of like nihilism where everything is subjective and don't tell me how to interpret this or that or whatever. Um, I'm not an expert on it, clearly. But um, if postmodernism also gives us things like Pulp Fiction, it can't be all bad. Um, it also gave us things like Cubism and the early uh, the, the, the modern art movement. Um, now it's also as a, probably as a result of, or probably given us also modern feminism, and, uh, you know, I'm not a fan of that. And so that, by extension, like the, the modern progressive left, which is essentially like a cancer. But I, I'm not an expert on it. Uh, you check out Jordan Peterson's work if you're interested in that. Um, I want to throw a Game of Thrones to... at you. Um, the, the girl who plays Arya, that's her name, right? 
she has a quote recently, something to the effect of, at this day and age, if you're not a feminist, you're an evil person, and we should stop calling them feminists and call anyone who is not a feminist a sexist and everyone else just a human. Yeah, good deal. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, when you're a young actor, you don't really know much. And you're probably influenced by the, the, the lefties around you, which is why I think libertarians and people like us need to get into Hollywood and take it over, because that is how we're going to win this war, man. I mean, the, the culture, it's just, it's so important. Culture drives the, the politics and the ideas in the people, right? It's, it's not the politics uh, directly, it's the ideas of the culture. And, and you see this uh, throughout history, where... and this is me conspiratorially making my narrative in my head kind of spout into the mic here, but you'd see this incrementalism, this progression where ideas would be introduced in TVs and movie. And then a few years later, you'd see it introduced in ballot measures and in um, news articles and and news on on TV. And then eventually they'd become uh, laws or protected classes or civil rights or uh, Supreme Court cases, etc., and it would be this progression. Um, one thing that stands in my mind is the um, Will and Grace being the first, you know, openly gay characters or whatever, and then all of a sudden, five, ten years later, gay this, gay that becomes uh, a huge political issue, a huge news item issue. And I, I have no position. I mean, I'm an individualist, an anarchist. I don't think there should be any special rights or privileges given to anyone for any reason whatsoever. Uh, if you want to be gay, be gay. Um, not my thing. Uh, it doesn't bother me. But my point is that seeing the culture drive the other elements of society, and I think that's what um, you're alluding to here, unless I'm incorrect. Well, you're incorrect about everything, but you're probably ha. not wrong about what you just said. Um, I believe it's uh, Lee Rockwell who said that um, politics is downstream of culture. And you're absolutely right. Um, I would add in that the un- the universities really drive this. Um, you get, you know, for the past 10 years, you've had these Marxist and postmodernist professors talking about feminism, culture, gender studies, and then the students come out into the world and they get jobs at Google and YouTube and Marvel. right-wing speech. And they, push, and they push feminist ideas on us through the culture. And if we could just take over that... <laughs> I mean, why not? What's stopping us from taking over that? They did it. It's doable. Our ideas are better than theirs, right? So, yeah, take over, man. Get, uh, if, you're, if your thing is being a teacher, get into the universities. Counteract that bullshit. Uh, well, isn't there a, a whole lot of roadblocks to getting tenure and getting into a university program or even getting a PhD if you don't toe the line? I remember Rothbard's... Um, doctorate was held up for years because of his beliefs uh, didn't coincide with his um, uh, what do you call it, advisor or whoever would support his PhD status uh, and Stefan Molyneux talks about that in and Molyneux talks about it in, in uh, one of his books, I think it's Everyday Anarchy or, or um, what's the other one uh, Practical Anarchy, where he talks about the uh, education system, the university system that drives out anyone who, who has any dissenting opinion then what do we do when the platform isn't friendly to us? Make our own damn platform. Create our own universities that outcompete these stupid socialist leftist universities. And that's the Jordan, Jordan Peterson thing, right? That's what Peterson's doing, and that's what Tom Woods has, has done to a degree with Liberty Classroom, which, by the way, you can click on the link on our website and uh, get into that. It's really good stuff, like 30 courses in uh, 
economics and philosophy and logic and a whole bunch of other things, including a course on um, uh, fiction and uh, uh, mythology, movies, etc. Which Robert, you and I should actually do that. It might help us with the show. But click on our link, at Liberty Classroom, Tom Woods. Uh, but Jordan Peterson's also talking about doing a um, online university type thing that will get its own accreditation. He's he's working through that. But then there's things like even um, the Khan Academy and uh, many university courses are available free online. And if it's physics or chemistry or other things, there's not a lot of SJW content in that. So, sorry, I digress. Back to you, Robert. What the hell are we talking about? What the hell was I talking about? Taking over, making your own platform. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, no, there's a lot of discussion among freedom lovers about the censorship in YouTube and Google and whatnot. And it's somewhat true. I mean, it's true. I don't know if it's a whole lot to get upset about. I think it's a, it's a great opportunity for an entrepreneur to create a platform that does cater to ideas like ours. So, yeah, um, I would say our, make more, more popular things. I wouldn't say that our people. ideas are popular, though. They are growing. Well, that's because we're not communicate, communicating it effectively. We're not educating people effectively. I mean, how many times have you argued with some leftist that has almost zero understanding of economics? All the time. <laughs> every single time. Every single time. So it seems to be that economic illiteracy goes hand in hand. With well, the, a lot of them think they know something. Or well, right, they that, demand. that's what gets you in trouble. It's the thing that you think you know that just isn't true. Yeah, yeah, that's Will Rogers, I think. That's a good quote. Yeah, it's a good quote. I'll add that to the quotes database, the actualanarchy.com slash quotes, 600 and growing quotes about liberty. Good stuff there. Indeed. All right, so Daniel, let's talk about some fun things because this is a fun show, right? Super fun time, special. So this is a movie movie, that made things serious. Things were kind of trivial or asked kind of fun questions where people were doing serious things. Um, One of the debates that Vincent and Jules have is the issue of Tony Rocky Horror and the incident of the foot massage. Oh, yeah, where's the foot fucking master, Jules? He's he's got his technique down, doesn't take a or anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's good. So would you give a man a foot massage? (laughs) Man, fuck you. So do you think that if he had given the foot massage to Mia, do you think that's stepping over the line? I mean, regardless of whether or not you think he could throw him out a window or not, but do you think that that's some sort of a breach? Fucking up the way way he talks? Yeah. Uh, You know, that's a tough one because that's a subjective opinion, right? Like anyone puts, like someone might be upset if anyone puts their hands in a caressing, sensual way on their wife, like in a, like a jealous kind of way. Yeah. But for me, my, my wife, she gets massages. She goes to a chiropractor. I'm just like, all right, cool, whatever. <laughs> so as long as somebody pays for it, you're okay with it. But what if someone yeah, so, doesn't, doesn't, so it, she doesn't pay someone to do it? If it were prostitution, then, then sure, it's fine. But yeah, if it's uh, because they want to do it, then, then there's a problem, right? <laughs> okay, so they want to do it. Now there's a problem. And has, has that person crossed the line? Has he invaded your whatever? He's made an aggressive move against you? or violated some sort of contract or anything like that? If someone wants to rub my wife's feet, uh, knock, knock yourself out. Um, I don't want to do it. Uh, she loves it, but I'm not a fan. So any, anyone's welcome. I won't, I won't begrudge you. Anybody's welcome calling all foot massagers. All foot fucking masters. <laughs> you, know, you know, there are some serious foot fetishes up in this world. You know that, right? All right. Well, I, I may retract some of what I said. My, my wife has to be okay with it. I, I will say that. It needs to be voluntary on both parties. Okay, but there's no transgression against you. You don't, you don't see any kind of social 
norm being violated or anything like that, you're totally fine with this. I'm fine with foot massages. Um, they do talk about like doing something to the holiest of holies, and yeah, I think that that crosses a few lines. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I think it's Jules who's talking about how there's a difference between those two things. But Vincent's point is that there's something different in a foot massage and why you wouldn't give a foot massage to a man, but you would do a woman. I think he's got a point. I mean, giving a foot massage to a man, uh, so long as it's not like you're a foot massage provider, a merchant of foot massages, you're a foot fucking master. By the way, I'm going to somehow throw a foot fucking master into the show notes page somehow. But I, I, I think if you were to voluntarily want to do a foot massage for someone, he would likely line up with your sexual preference, like the, the person or the, the sex of the type of person that you would want to be intimate with. You follow what I'm saying? I know it's all fluid these yeah. days. It's all trans and, and multifaceted and confusing. But you know what I'm saying, right? I can pretend like I know what you're saying. Keep going. But yeah, you, you wouldn't give a foot massage to the gender or self-identifying whatever that you're not into. You'd only give a foot massage to the type that you would be attracted to, want to be intimate with, etc. So I think Vincent's I got, would. got a point here. I mean, I, there's probably all types. I mean, if you're a foot fetishist, and you just want to, you just love feet, and all you it want just, to do is touch. It feet. don't matter. Yeah, it don't matter. It's a, that's that's the beginning and the end. You don't want to move it beyond that. You don't care. But I would imagine if people are more like me, then yeah, you are giving that person a foot massage, trying to get closer to that person, and enjoying that sensual contact, and you know, trying to move forward with the relationship. So, what about the the yeah. back rub thing? Is the back rub the same? What about it? Is the back rub the same as a foot massage, or or is it a level down, or or what? In your estimation. We're talking skin on skin, or are we talking through the shirt? Let's go through the shirt, because skin on skin implies that there is um, you know, more intimacy. I have given back rubs to many of my friends. And if, if you had some kind of a kink in your back, I'd say, come here, get over here. And just let me jab my thumb in there, or my elbow. Here, you, does that feel better? All right, good. Yeah, remember, your old, your old man would lay on the floor and have you like push down on him and rub in certain areas on his back. Uh, because he would get knots or whatever from the the running or jogging that he would do. Not just that. He also has terrible posture like me. And, yeah, he would just get knots. And so, yeah, I would jab my elbow into there, right in, you know, in between the shoulder blade and the spine there. So, yeah, I, and I've done that to all kinds of friends, and it's not a sexual thing. So I think it's definitely a step below foot massage. Okay, because I, I did my uh, sexual harassment training for work. It's required every year. And yeah. it told me many, many things, uh, including that back massages were unwelcome sexual contact. Um, if that person doesn't want you to, sure. Yes. Uh, I did answer all the questions correctly, and it told me I was 100% compliant. So, yay me. It's going to go on my ses- Sesame score. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'll post um, down below. There's a video about Sesame score, everyone. It's a, it's a crazy, ridiculous social network about people policing other people and uh, anyone who dissents gets a lower score and if you're friends with them in this social network your score gets dragged down with them so it it incentivizes ostracism and keeping other people in their place in the uh, political realm um, being patriotic and not dissenting from the government uh, sponsored opinion so I'll post that down below it's scary shit sesame credit yeah and there's another I think there's some other ones um, there's one in Canada that uh, I saw recently. Um, I forget who was talking about that, but um, yeah, it's the the wave of the future, man. That kind of stuff is all going to get linked together with your apps and what you're doing, what you're going online, your credit score, whether you can get a loan or not. 
which is your freedom score. It's a real scary social engineering shit. It's a gamification of life where you score points if you if your views and your actions and your behaviors align with what the government wants. But yeah, um, what else are we talking about? We're talking about massage. Fucking master. Into that. Massage so, and Rocky Horror getting thrown out the, the window fucking up the way he talks. Yeah, so I maybe I'm a weirdo, but I would not feel at all a bit weird. I mean, maybe it depends on the person. You have to like know them fairly well or whatever. But yeah, if I had a knot in my back, I'd be like, hey, do you think you could take care of that real quick? I mean, we're not talking like some kind of sensual, put on some music and light some candles kind of shit. We're just like, hey, this, this is really bothering me. Could you, could you help me out here for a second? Right. So, so you're saying that Marcellus throws the guy out the window. He might have overstepped a little bit, even though, I mean, it sort of is a subjective thing, right? Like someone's jealous or protective of their wife. Anyone putting their hands on her might elicit a response, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, everyone's going to react differently. He's a gangster doing gangster shit. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't fuck with the guy's wife. If I, if I knew who he was? Yeah, this is a guy that obviously has no compunction about using violence to get what he wants. He has people killed all the time. He tries to kill people in this movie. Now, did, did Rocky Horror work for Marcellus? Because um, Vincent does, and he's hired to take her out on a date, and it, that's somewhat similar to hiring someone to give you a massage or be a prostitute, right? There's some exchange involved. <laughs> You think you're, you're, are you trying to make the argument that Marcellus hired Tony Rocky Horror to give his wife a foot massage and then got upset about it? Well, he might have hired her to take her out to a good time, mm. which is what he did with Vincent Vega. Right. Yeah. Uh, unknown. Who knows? Maybe that might have been the way it goes. But me, according to Mia, she says that they only touched when he shook her hand at the wedding. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. But I don't believe her. <laughs> Sorry, I don't. Well, she's a liar, of course, clearly, because she's. She's a woman. No, why don't why don't you believe her, Daniel? Uh, I don't know. Just I don't believe any of the characters really in this movie. None of them have shown any uh, penchant for being honest, mm-hmm. except for maybe um, the wolf, Winston Wolf, but he yeah. does some gangster ass shit as well. I believe uh, Christopher Walken when he tells the story. <laughs> totally believe that. Oh, the, the watch up his ass, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's the story you're telling because you're proud of it, or <laughs> like you want to really dress it up. But it does make make the up. watch all that more important for Butch, and so it gives gives a reason for him to go back and get it, which of course leads to him running into Vincent and Marcellus. Right, exactly. So so let's just I don't know give a quick time frame of the movie real quick here because we're we're an hour in and we have talked about maybe one and a half scenes. <laughs> all right, do it, buddy. All right. So him and Jules Winfield and Vincent Vega arrive at the apartment of Brett to retrieve a briefcase for their boss, gangster Marcellus Wallace. After Vincent checks the contents of the case, Jules shoots one of Brett's associates and then uh, gives a passage from a Bible uh, before he and Vincent kill Brett. They take the briefcase to Marcellus, but have to wait while he bribes champion boxer Butch Coolidge to take a dive in an upcoming match, which I might add is why we had thought about doing this movie because of the um, uh, McGregor-Mayweather fight that happened last uh, last week. We thought that this had a bit of a boxing theme to it, so it might be a movie worth doing, and we're not actually now tying it to that very well, but it's still one of Robert's top movies. It's number one stunner for Robert, so we're talking about it still, and I've lost my train of thought, but what do you got, Robert? Good job. Yeah, so um, what happens after that? And that's that's um, that's Jules' storyline, sort of. Right. So he is convinced that God came down and moved the bullets, and so he's going to quit. Um, the next scene for them 
is they're driving the car and they shoot Marvin in the face. Vincent does. And so then they go to Tarantino's house. And again, they play with tension because there's this time element when Bonnie gets home in an hour and a half. And what do they do? So they call Marcellus and Marcellus sends the wolf. And the whole time they're supposed to be working to clean up this body and they're just talking about other crap. And it's just, it's, you don't get the sense that time is a real issue, even though it should be. There should be tension from the time element. But you're just so entertained that even though the, the characters don't seem like they're worried about time, so there's no tension from that. And again, I would have liked generally to see tension, but uh, it's a t- you're just so entertained by the dialogue and the way that they're just subverting normal things. Like we said, these are some gangsters and they have their long-running discussion points and interactions and like Jules getting upset with um, Vincent about not washing his hands properly. I mean, you just murdered, you just had a, you just murdered a couple people and you killed, you killed another guy and you have no worries about that, but you're upset about Vincent, you know, getting too much blood on a towel. It's, uh, maybe it's if weird, we had some, some of that lava or something, I could, I could get it off. You could have done a better job with some lava. I understand. I understand. Don't get me wrong. But, um, it's funny when you, when you have completely psychopathic characters that don't care about humanity. I mean, they're just, they're just doing their job. They're just collecting a paycheck. They like the lifestyle and they don't care about killing people. What they actually do care about. And I guess that's what Tarantino's point is, is that, um, when you're dealing with a bunch of nihilists, what do they actually care about when they don't have the moral issues to, to ponder? Because they don't care. They're not debating whether or not what they're doing is right or wrong. So what do they actually care about? And it's, right, it's just weird water, little... water cooler talk for just their day-to-day shit. Right. So it's like, hey, this is a nice coffee. Where do you get it? <laughs> or, you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's weird, strange dialogue that, that seems out of place, but it is. It's perfectly in place for these uh, psychopathic nihilists. Yeah, that so reminds then, me of uh, American Psycho, both the novel and, and the the movie, because it also takes a similar tact with uh, all the psych- psychopathic things underneath, but they have this um, surface level conversation about the type of shoes or the type of coffee or the type of cologne or whatever that people are wearing, and they're all trying to oppress each other and take uh, stock with with each other and, and size each other up while totally ignoring all the humanity or the depravity that uh, lurks beneath it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a movie we need to do. We've, we've talked about doing that movie before, but we've never got around to it. Yeah, I think it'd be a good one. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Um, yeah, what do you care about when you don't worry about the morality of anything? Um, because, yeah, Jules and Vincent, they just, they just killed one of their friends, supposedly, like an ally. And they're just more worried about getting caught themselves and getting blood on things. And they have no, no qualms about it. They're not like, oh, my God, we might be in the wrong business getting people killed. Yeah, people. Can I just mention that, that Vincent does not have good gun safety? Like, yeah, you can, you can mention that. Um, yeah. Can I mention uh, there's, a, there's a story supposedly in the original script. He's supposed to get shot in the neck. And then they discuss whether or not what they should do. And they decide that they should put him out of his misery. Then they shoot him in the face. But they thought that that would um, make the characters less likable. Because apparently, I mean, this is, this is a very kind of weird emotional story where these characters are psychopathic killers, but yet the audience likes them. 
sort of, in the same way that as long as you're nice and likable and charming, you can do whatever you want, apparently, kind of like Obama. But if you're not likable, not charming, but you do the same shit, everybody hates you, like Trump. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I think I, I, still, I still like the, the Jules character, and I like the Vincent character, but yeah, they're absolutely psychopathic killers, and you, don't, you can't morally defend what they do. Um, but you can appreciate, I think you can kind of identify with them emotionally in that these are people that they're probably not the brightest bulbs, and maybe they're not the worst people, but maybe they are. Maybe, maybe I'm sick for liking them. I don't know. What do you, how do you feel about that, um, where a movie will have the protagonist just do horrific things? Or do you think that their actions are justified? I mean, killing Marvin was an accident. Um, when they go in to kill their business associates, they got what they wanted. They got the, the briefcase. But Marcellus wanted to send a message to anybody else that would ever in the future renege on their deal, kind of, any, kind of break any of their contracts so that he had them all killed. But they didn't need to be killed. So it's not like Jules and Vincent. I mean, they're absolutely hitmen. They're killers, assigned, hired assassins. It's not like they were acting defensively or justifiably. So how do we, as an audience, identify them or even like them? Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the flash and the snappy dialogue, honestly. They right. say funny, interesting things, uh, and they become likable. I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, yeah, they do horrific criminal shit. It's a, uh, it's a, real, trick, it's a real mind trick, right? I and mean, that's what Obama did. He did horrific shit, but he said it nicely and charmingly. Had funny jokes, and everybody. Yeah, went along so with them. let's talk about let's talk about the case. What's in the case? Okay, because nobody knows in the movie. Yeah, so the long running um, fan theory is that it's Marcellus's soul, and you can tell that because the soul supposedly in some kind of story or mythology is taken out of the back of the head, and that's where Marcellus has this band aid. Um, in all the stuff I saw in doing research for this episode, I. Um, the story went that Marcellus cut himself shaving because he played a bald character and he put a bandaid on there and Tarantino liked the look of it. So he shot that scene where we first see Marcellus talking to Butch from the back so he could focus in on that bandaid. Um, so that wasn't necessarily an intention by the, the director, kind of in the same way that I'm not sure that Tarantino was trying to subvert traditional storytelling or really making a commentary, really trying to deconstruct the, the, the genre or whatever, um, can leave that up to the critics and the uh, philosophers and whatnot. Um, you're just trying to make your art and trying to make a thing that you like. Um, so I, what's in the case? Is it his soul? Um, Tarantino himself came out and said, nothing's in the case. It's not important what's in the case. And I absolutely agree with him. I think that this movie is more about the case being a MacGuffin to move the story along. It's not important what's in the case. It's just important that Marcellus wants the case. He wants what's in the case and that he, his employees will go out and retrieve it for him. Um, I think it's interesting that Tarantino even bothered to write scenes in which this case got opened up and never showed it to the audience, kind of leaving that mystery. That's interesting to me. But um, leaving it up to, you know, endless endless speculation, but uh, it's not, you know, I think ultimately it's, it's, it's not important what it is. It's, it's just important that Marcellus wants it, and he may be making some sort of a statement about control, about Marcellus being able to, having power over the other characters, and them doing his bidding to get what he wants. Right, so it doesn't uh, matter eh. what's in the case, but I also think that, um, you know how in a, a horror movie, it's often what they don't show you that's scary? 
Absolutely. And that might be some of the impetus behind not knowing what's in the case, not seeing it directly, because then it's left to your imagination. It could be something super, super important or valuable. And without identifying specifically what it is, it's not just a um, a heist film. You know, it's not Ocean's Eleven, like you were talking about earlier, where they don't talk about how they're going to do the gangster shit they're going to do. Uh, they don't, you know, make plans or talk about whether it's good or bad what they've done, like in a movie that's more procedural. Um, where you know they're trying to get diamonds or money or whatever, uh, leaving it in the open makes it where it could be anything, and and that allows you as an audience member to allow your imagination to run away with it and become, I guess, more in tune with the story itself, more focused on the story instead of um, what the specific item is, right? Because you sort of get to choose your own adventure in a way, like where yeah, you want it to be in the case is what's in the case, right? As soon as as soon as Tarantino tells you what's in the case, then you're like, oh, well, that's not that very very valuable. But as soon, yeah, when he leaves it up to the viewer's imagination, yeah, the viewer is coming up with any number of incredibly valuable things. Um, one guy said that it, he thought it might be uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's head. That would be a fun one. <laughs> seven. We should do seven. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good movie, too. Um, what else? What else? Do you want to talk more about that case? I don't know. I don't really have anything else. Marked. No, I just think that that's kind of a brilliant um, thing, if that's what he did, was to intentionally leave it ambiguous for these very reasons, because I think it, it does make it more engrossing. It really does. Like, once you know what it is, then then people will apply their subjective value assessments to whatever, you know, XYZ is. And if you don't know what it is, it leaves it open to anyone to interpret it however they wish. So it makes it, yeah. in fact, more valuable to people. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, because all you're giving, all the only information you have is how the other characters in the movie are reacting to it. And they seem to put a great deal of value on it, so you're just left to imagine what they could possibly care about so much. Um, yeah. I think it's interesting that it's gone to the level of soul, because I remember from the very beginning that was the theory. Was That was the first theory that I ever remember hearing about it. And there's nothing else in the movie that would tend you or lend you to believe that, that it was... I mean, there's nothing else mystical in the story except for Jules' belief in divine intervention. But well, that's completely Jules' idea. Right, but to coincide with the, the soul story is I recall something like that, and it was like, you see the band-aids on the back of his head, which you've already explained, but that's where they would suck the soul out. And so he's had it removed from him, and he's desperate to get it back. And so that was sort of this underlying like secret message, right, that people could read into it. But as you said, it was just he literally cut himself uh, getting into character, shaving his head. <laughs> right, but leaving it ambiguous, what's in the case, allows for all that rampant speculation and reading into it, and it gives you so much more meaning into this, this story. Like like you said, if it's his soul, and for some reason these couple of guys managed to get it for some reason, who knows, um, what lengths he would go to to get it back, and what value he would place on that, um, it changes the whole nature of the story, in the, the what happened before the movie. Um, what what kind of process would be involved in sucking the soul out of it? And why would these gangsters have access to that kind of technology or that kind of ability? What kind of universe are we talking about? What What's taking place? It seems to be just this kind of gangster movie, but is there all this mysticism going on too? What's, what's really happening? Um, and then you can read into all sorts of different things and really have a lot of fun with it. So it, it tells me, um, you know, you don't need to explain everything all the time. And it's probably better if you don't. And allowing the the reader's imagination or the viewer's imagination to fill in the blanks and to really get involved and make each each viewer and each reader 
have their own experience with the, the piece um, can really allow it to have a life beyond just what you created. Really fun. Really fun. Good stuff. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I do want to make sure we touch on a couple of uh, additional scenes. One is the um, Mia getting resuscitated with the adrenaline. I want to talk through that a little bit. And the other being Zed and the Gimp and all of that action. Um, but is there any way that you can think of where we can actually tie this to a Rothbardian analysis in, in any respect? Because at this point, almost an hour in, uh, we <laughs> I don't think we've talked about anything that's related to really being libertarian other than the, um, uh, value, the scale. value scale and saying something nice and doing the same bad shit as somebody saying something not so nice uh, somehow gets a pass. Um, I don't really have, uh, you know, rewatching this movie again, like I know you didn't, I was struggling to come up with things to talk about, I, that, which is why I went more towards the, the film analysis angle. There is a scene with where um, Vince is in the bathroom again, and Mia is getting wasted. But before that, before he comes out of the bathroom, he's kind of debating with himself what's, what's going to happen. And because, you know, this date that's not supposed to be a date sure is turning out kind of like a date. And they're kind of getting kind of chummy. And he's debating with himself, you know, whether he should be loyal in that situation or if he should hook up with this girl. And he, I think he even calls it like a moral dilemma. Or somebody I saw called it a moral dilemma. And for me, yeah, it sure seems like that would be a moral dilemma. I think if he had, even though it would be a voluntary act between the two of them, he would have violated some sort of agreement with his boss, some kind of understanding who happens sort of to be the husband of, of the woman. So yeah. they have a, a contractual agreement as well. Yeah, it's some sort of a contractual agreement. I mean, not necessarily there would be a, a monogamous relationship. I don't know. If, I don't know. When, when, when there's a polygamous marriage, do you, or an open marriage, do you, do, you, do you write it down? Or is it just like a verbal thing? I don't know. How, how are the kids doing it these days, Daniel? I don't know. Well, from what I understand, a verbal contract is, is just as good, but somehow it's not as easy to uh, enforce it, right? Right. But I'm no lawyer. I have no idea. All right, so do you, do you see Vince as having a, a moral dilemma at that point? Well, he's, he's got a choice he can make, and he's weighing the, the potential consequences, and he's telling himself he's going to go home and jerk off instead of following through on his um, uh, spidey senses that are telling him that this girl wants to hook up with him. Right. So, so he's making it another been, choice. You agree that it would have been a betrayal then? Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 Okay, okay, good. Yeah. All right. Now, to bring some economics to it, there is the there's two scenes. One is another bathroom scene where they're at the Jackrabbit Slims and, and they do the, the crazy dancing. Yeah. And I think he goes to the bathroom and uh, comes no, back he and he doesn't. She does. Oh, she, she does. OK. She goes. She orders, right. 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 And she orders a five dollar milkshake and he can't believe the a milkshake costs five dollars. Right. So he's like, I got a taste of five dollar milkshake. Now this is in 1994, right when this came out. So yep. I guess five dollars was maybe a bit much for a milkshake back in those days. But he was astounded at the price, and he was hoping that um, it would, the quality or the uh, experience of that milkshake would satisfy like his uh, expectations for paying that amount of money. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, you and I, after I graduated from high school, we drove down to San Francisco and went to that um, Tibetan Freedom concert with the Beastie Boys and all that. And I recall going to the Ghirardelli Chocolate Factory, and they had a $5 milkshake. And uh, it was pretty fucking good, I have to admit. Now, of course, with his $5 milkshake, he's not just buying a $5 milkshake. He's also buying the experience 
of eating at that restaurant. Yeah, the entertainers. Sure. Yeah, this this restaurant is not your just normal McDonald's or whatever. You get these waiters and waitresses that are dressed up as classic film characters. There's a dance performance that they didn't necessarily have to take part in, but they could have if they wanted to, and they did want to. So they got that. There's a there's an MC dressed up like um, who's that old guy? You know, oh, a really big show. Um, yeah, that's a guy. He's a famous yeah. person. He had a TV show forever. He's a famous was, guy. <laughs> yeah, you know, the Beatles went on a show and stuff. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. You get a whole show and experience, and, and you get to sit and eat your burger in a classic car kind of thing, and it's a whole experience. So you're not just paying for a $5 shake. You're also paying for all of that, and clearly they value that whole experience more than the $5. So everybody's winning. All right, so I, I do want to bring up one thing. She says to him in the car before they go into the restaurant, don't be a square, and motions uh, a rectangle, and they do outline of it. And that always bothers me, because that's not a square. It's a rectangle. Did you write an angry letter to Quentin Tarantino? I'm penning it now. Okay, good. Because yeah, that is an outrage. That is an outrage that cannot stand, sir. This aggression will not stand. How dare you, Quentin, call a rectangle a square? Can you imagine all the four- and five-year-olds watching Pulp Fiction for the first time, learning just about squares and rectangles, and being completely confused? Unbelievable. That man's a monster. Unconscionable monster, and he needs to be stopped. Side tangent, you you do mention this. Uh, Serials, spelling names of things uh, different than the words are traditionally spelled, always bothered me because kids are going to have that on their table, and they're going to think tricks is spelled with an X or Captain is spelled with a capin, like apostrophe N. <laughs> and Fruit Loop. You, like, I, I, I smell an old. angry letter writing campaign coming. But think of that. Think of that. Fruit Loops are on your kid's desk, and then they go to school, and they got to spell fruit. Are they going to spell it two O's, or are they going to spell it correctly? The madness. They would never be able to recover. And if my kids are watching Pulp Fiction, they're going to think a fucking rectangle is a square. Yeah. Uh, I, can you imagine the first time you show your three-year-old Pulp Fiction and they're just going to be so confused? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's uh, outrageous. All outrageous. right. Moving on. Moving on. Let's get to Zed. Let's get to Zed. All right. So, yeah, unfortunately, um, Butch has to go back to his apartment because his girlfriend forgot his watch, which we learned was super important to him. It was handed down through the generations. So he has to go back. And through the colon. And, yes. And he has to run into... Who else but Marcellus getting donuts, waiting for him, Butch, to show up at his apartment with Vincent. So he runs into him, and we see a cameo from, what's her name, with the, the redhead, with the Trump decapitated head lady. Oh, Kathy Griffin, yep. Kathy Griffin cameo, yep. And they get unlucky because they run into the one pawn shop in America, apparently, with some dishonest um, proprietors. And they say that there nobody can kill anybody in their establishment but him or Zed. So I support that. It's property I mean, right. So you support the property right. No one else. They're not allowing killing in their premises by anyone else. They, I, I would be with them if they had just said we don't allow anybody killing anybody on our property. Now, when they say that they have the right to kill anybody that gets comes on their property. I have a sticking point with that. I don't think I, that that would be consistent with any kind of libertarian type of values. I will agree. Circle gets the square. Good. I'm, I'm going to make the controversial statement that they have a business that is open to customers, 
and for them to just grab some rando that comes into their store to buy a uh, an old Nintendo game or something, and they're just going to clonk them over the head and take them in the back and rape them to death. It seems a bit excessive. And maybe they could put this tiny little sign next to the door that says no trespassing, and if you do, you will get violently raped to death, and everybody would be all right with it. But what, what, what specifically um, do you want to say? I mean, Butch, Butch is a main character of his story, is a guy that is reneging on his contract with Marcellus. He has a contract to go down in the fifth, but instead he kills the other boxer, not intentionally, but, you know, he knocks him out, whatever, wins the fight instead, betting on himself to win, and then he's going to make the getaway. So do we feel like he's a good character? Is he a hero character? Now, this is an interesting question because he does have an agreement with Marcellus that he'll throw the fight, but he also knows that Marcellus is throwing a lot of money uh, for him to throw the fight, so that makes the odds of him winning pay off much better. So right. him not throwing the fight and betting on himself makes a bigger, bigger payday. Now, in the arena of sports and contest where you're supposed to be trying your best and, and trying to defeat your opponent and the true uh, you know, better wins, um, then I think it's against that spirit of, of sportsmanship. Uh, it's a little bit tough with, he does agree to throw the fight, but it's almost, it's almost unethical to throw a fight, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm a little bit torn. Like he's, he's agreed with the boxer and the fans who are paying to see this, that he's going to fight to win. And so yeah, he's do making, you, do you think that, um, that, uh, if you're putting on a, some sort of a, uh, athletic competition, do you have the some sort of an obligation to disclose to anybody watching it that it's completely legitimate? It seems like you wouldn't have that obligation. I mean, WWF, professional wrestling has been around forever, and they've never officially come out and said, oh, by the way, this is all just entertainment. I mean, they, they only did that when I think the government sued them and said, hey, this isn't real. You have to change your name from the World Wrestling Federation to the World Wrestling Entertainment because this isn't a real sport. But I don't think you have any kind of positive thing to say, hey, this is all on the up and up. This isn't fixed. I think you, all the, the only thing you're, you have to do as a business owner is to say, we're going to have this competition. We're, gonna have, we're playing this game right here. This is either boxing or football or baseball or whatever. If you, doing enjoy this thing. It, if you enjoy watching it, you maybe buy a ticket. Maybe turn it on the old TV. But I'm not going to say whether or not, you know, I mean, maybe we're going to have this guy you know, win this one here, and then that guy is going to win this one there, and then this team's going to win this game. And I mean, we like to think we get upset when we hear that, you know, uh, like a referee has been bought and he was calling. I, mean, I watched Super Bowl 40. I know. <laughs> I was upset about that at the time. Uh, that was some of the worst refereeing ever, if you call it worst. I mean, they're clearly trying to win for the Steelers. I mean, that's just the way it was. That, that yeah, was the storyline. It was like 15 against 11, right? Yeah, I mean, that was it was a WWF match. That's what it was. Um, I think it's the fans like to trick themselves into thinking that it, what they're watching is a legitimate competition because no one ever comes out and specifically says that it isn't. But I don't think that you have the obligation to say that, oh, by the way, this is all legitimate. So I'm not so sure about your, your statement that um, throwing the fight is, uh, is any kind of wrong. Um, I, think, I think that's a market force. I think if enough people watching it go, oh, this shit's fake, fixed. They're perfectly uh, you know, fine to just walk out and not patronize that crap anymore. Like when I was watching the Conor McGregor fight. <laughs> Conor McGregor Mayweather fight. Um, 
I, I thought it was a perfectly good fight, but when I saw the uh, judges' scorecards, I said, fixed. Anybody that saw the first three rounds and didn't score them for McGregor, I was going, fixed. And only uh, uh, one judge scored, I think, the first three rounds for McGregor. The other two scored them 2-1 two, and 1-2. Uh, so, yeah. Um, and I'm perfectly fine with that. It, it's, your, your sport is a bullshit sport. And I'm not going to patronize it. I'm not going to support it. But I think most sports are kind of, kind, of, kind of bullshit. I think MMA is probably the least fixed just because it's so difficult to fix, but it's still fixable. Anyway, yeah, I mean, you hear about sports being fixed fairly often, like basketball teams or baseball teams, famously the Chicago Black Sox, Black Sox right? Yep. Uh, yeah, there's so much money involved. Yeah, but I, I also think that there are they do go out of their way in some instances to say that they're above board and legit. Like the Olympics, they'll say, oh, we do drug testing or the Tour de France or uh, even baseball. They'll say, oh, now we're testing everyone for PEDs or uh, performance enhancing drugs. And we'll put an they asterisk do that. next to Barry Bonds. Uh, they do that, but they're say sorry, it's but, legit. But they're, don't you think they're responding to people, to the fans? to try and get increased market share, right? To try and show how legit they are, to respond to claims that they aren't legit. Maybe. I mean, I mean bringing it back to baseball WWF. Baseball cleaned itself up. Right, but, but WWF uh, didn't take a hit when it was admitted, <laughs> finally, that it's not real. Like, this is still super popular, right? Right, because I think the, the, the fans always knew. Yeah, the real fans already knew, and it's like a freaking soap opera for neck-bearded dudes. Yeah, they, they don't care. That, they go into it. Look, look, watching for the storylines. My sister goes to a, there's an annual or at least a quarterly um, amateur wrestling match put on like some local establishment, like a, a brewery. And it's free to get in, free to watch. And it's just, you're just going there for the storylines. And you don't care. It's just whatever. Everybody knows. Everybody knows at this point, hopefully. Um, and then it's the same kind of in the fight game. Uh, because those things are so fixed, you're really just going into it for the storylines. Uh, there is a certain amount of, well, who would really win? And I think there's a certain amount of people who want to watch those fights, like me, as fans of martial arts and fans of physical competition, for that kind of skill game to see who is the more skilled person. So you're basically but saying, think, buyer, buyer beware, and if you're going to make a bet, consider who has the most to gain uh, from yeah. throwing the fight as part of your yeah. consideration. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes a smarter fan, right? A more, a more discerning consumer. Yeah, interesting concept, yeah. I mean, you don't begrudge me for, for saying that, that perhaps Butch had an obligation to perform at his highest level and try to win um, until we talk this out, right? Because now I'm kind of leaning towards your, your point here. Well, no, I mean, uh, good. I'm glad I'm, I'm convincing you a little bit, maybe. But um, in the spirit of competition, I think there's a certain amount of pride, like, like Marcellus tells him in the movie. That's pride fucking with you. Yeah, fuck pride. Um, yeah, fuck pride. Get paid instead. But you, you, men are naturally competitive, and that's why a lot of the times the referee is the one that's bought off with the umpire instead of the, the competitors themselves, because the competitors really do. It's hard for them to you know, take a pride dive. But you watch, you watch some boxing matches, and they showed some clips when they were t I watched a thing, I think it was on YouTube the other day, that was talking about the McGregor fight. And they showed some clips of boxers getting punched in the gloves and going down and just getting knocked out. I mean, just just airball punches that would knock people out. It's, I don't know what my point was. What was my damn point? Anyway, um, there are people that will, you know, when it comes down to it, yeah, sure, they'll take the dive. But 
you know, mo- more often than not, and I think that's why it keeps people coming back, is the, the spirit of competition is, is a real thing. So um, I don't know. I, I stopped short of saying Butch had an obligation, yeah, to, to, to not take a dive in the spirit of the competition. But it, I think it's more his pride that would prevent him from doing that. Um, right. Well, and, and he was going to get paid even more than getting paid to take the dive, right? Because the odds were so heavily against him winning and betting on himself, he was going to make even more money. Right. With the, the added um, danger of screwing over a man like Marcellus Wallace. Right, which he decided was worth it, which I find kind of interesting. Because, like you were saying, he was going to get paid to take the dive, and I'm sure he would have been paid quite handsomely. So to take that yeah. additional risk must have been very significant monetarily. Because he was going to have to go hide in a bowl of rice, right? And that's what Marcellus was saying. Like, if this guy goes to Indochina, <laughs> I want someone hide in a bowl of rice to, to bust a cap in his ass. Right, so that's a significant threat when you're pissing off a guy like Marcellus, you're breaking a contract with a guy like Marcellus with incredible resources and a penchant for aggressive violence. So he thought the trade-off was worth it. Um, yeah, man. So, but do you see Butch as a hero character though? Because he broke a contract, even if it was a contract with a guy like Marcellus, you're still breaking contracts, which I'm okay with. Um, well, are you saying he's a hero? Cause I, I don't view really anyone as a hero in this movie. No, I, He's probably the most hero-ish in that okay, he's going to break a contract, and everybody can break a contract at every time. We're not talking slavery here, but there are consequences. There are escape clauses. Like what happens in the case of you decide to break this contract? In this case, you're dealing with a psychopathic murderer guy, and the consequences of doing that are he's going to try and kill you. Right. High likelihood of death. <laughs> yeah. So what happens is they get caught in this death sex dungeon, and he escapes. And he decides, he, can, he makes this kind of like moral choice, right, to go back and save Marcellus. Oh, okay. All right. So he escapes because they're raping Marcellus, and he's able to knock out the gimp and then get away. But then he's like, all right, I can't just leave Marcellus down there. He's going to go back. So there's his hero moment. Right. He could have just left, taken Zed's motorcycle and bailed. And, left and this Marcellus is the guy he ran his car into and tried to kill moments before, and who he knew would hunt him across the ends of the earth. Um, and he had betrayal. a gun to Marcellus's head like a few minutes earlier. Right, yeah. On the floor of the shop. So, yeah, he was about to kill him. But he now he decides that... Yep. Yeah, now he decides that, well, he didn't deserve that. He says he deserves to die or, you know, uh, whatever. Like, I'm acting defensively now. It's not super clean that anyone's really the aggressor or the defender, I guess. You know, and I think this, him, this might be uh, um, now they have a common enemy, like... This has now brought them together, in a way? Right. Sure. Absolutely. Do, do you think that that's what's going through Butch's mind at that point? Or do you uh, think he's trying to get some kind of favors? I think the favors are not it, not the top of mind. I think I he's agree. gone through a hard experience with him, and he was like, I can't leave him like this. You know, now I, we are now yep. against this pure evil. Right. It's like, yeah, you, you, you recognize that he's, he's kind of like you, and... He doesn't deserve that kind of a fate. So, yeah, I'm going to go save this guy. And I think it's just icing on the cake that he forgives his transgression. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, he was about to just murder him anyway. <laughs> so, yes, yeah. it is an interesting um, turn there. But I can see it. I can see why. And I think that's what makes this movie so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, he takes his motorcycle. He says, Zed's dead, baby. Um, I don't I don't begrudge him for taking the motorcycle. Yeah, the crash that Honda. The chopper. <laughs> 
<laughs> had to crash the Honda. So, yeah, then that's the end of uh, Bush's storyline. Um, I would say he's probably the most hero-ish. Although Jules has, I think, still has the most... I mean, Butch has that, that hero turn, but Jules has the most character arc. development. In the, yeah. yeah, he has the biggest arc where he decides that he's going to now quit this lifestyle and not kill people and walk the earth and have adventures and be a bum because God has told him whatever. And he's still he's got to figure out what it is God's trying to tell him. And so I think he's, yeah, he's, he's the more interesting character. And I think he does a better acting job. I mean, he's just dynamite on screen in this movie. Sam Jackson, this is the movie where I was like, Sam Jackson is awesome. I mean, I thought, you know, Travolta did a good job and Willis did a good job. But for me, my money, Sam Jackson is the star of this movie. I agree. Yeah. And, and this is probably the first movie where I really noticed him. Um, right, because he had done some 80s stuff, right? Yeah, and, and wasn't the, the shark, shark movie uh, before this as well? Deep Blue Sea or something? Oh, he was in like Hunt for Red October, I want to say. Yeah, I don't know Another if he kind was. Of Tom Clancy-ish type of movies or something. I remember seeing him. I mean, he's been he's in a ton a of movies. He's been this a is million the, movies. Yeah, this is the one that stood out to me. And, and then he, he basically played this character repeatedly for the last 20 years. Yeah, he's, he's gone back to this well a couple of times, for sure. Uh, fun, th- fun note was that he was supposed to wear a big fat afro in this movie, but they brought a Jerry Curl wig, and uh, Tarantino loved it, so they put it on him instead. All right, second fun note. Um, he narrated a book called Go the Fuck to Sleep in his Jules <laughs> character, and it's hilarious. I'll post that YouTube video in the show notes page as well. Very nice. Children's book. <laughs> Uh, does it bother you? Because this has always bothered me about this movie. It's one little weird thing. The square and rectangle bothered. thing? Not the square and rectangle thing. No. The uh, the honey bunny speech is different in the beginning and in the end. Yeah, I, I've noticed that uh, every time. And I'm not sure why it is. Um, but for some reason, it doesn't bother me. I think it adds like a different dimension to it, a different color. If, I, don't, I don't know. It's... It's different enough because you're replaying the same scene or, or overlapping the scene because you've already seen that moment before, right? Yeah, but it's the same scene. Right. So maybe it's, it's another way of telling you it's not quite real, like the magic bullets and the making a square out of a rectangle. <laughs> and the soul. Yeah, yeah. there's some... It, you're crossing knows, some dimensions man? here. You know? Who knows? Probably crossing some dimensions. Tarantino is going real deep on this shit. Or they just made several takes and he picked two different ones. I don't know. Could be that easy. It's probably, like, oh, we, we blew the shot <laughs> on camera two on this one, so let's do this other one. Do we want to talk about um, the drug use and Vincent Vega's heroin and um, anything like that? Sure. Yeah, uh, I mean, that, I mean, that did drive people away from the theater. Um, the only other movie I've been in that people walked out of was uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Yeah, but you saw some really elderly people or something like that. Yeah, down in San Diego. I had my mom with me. <laughs> yeah, I remember about Pulp Fiction, though, the big re, um, reaction was, was that, was that anal rape scene really necessary to put in that movie? <laughs> I remember that was the big, the big reaction from a lot of the people I was talking to back in the day who thought that that was just crossing a line and didn't need to be in there. But, eh, I, it didn't bother me. I mean, anal rape bothers me, but I think that, I mean... It, there's plenty about the movie that was disturbing that I guess that was probably the worst thing, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's hey, not I, like the perpetrators of the anal rape, you know, turned out well for them. <laughs> they all died, didn't they? 
Yeah, yeah. One got cut in half by a katana sword, and the other had some hard pipe hitting. Uh, can't say the word right, uh, otherwise I'd be a Nazi. Um, uh, take You're already a Nazi. Come on. Flyers and a blowtorch to him. I heard you. I heard you listen to Tom Woods, and you 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 promote like the Mises Institute. And I didn't sign the petition. Wife. And you're a man, and I don't think you signed a petition saying you're not a Nazi, so... Yeah, on some, like, free blog site. Yeah, totally ridiculous. Um, I wanted to talk about the drug use thing, because there's an interesting idea that I just thought of, and and maybe you'll have some ideas about this. Maybe. Redundant, redundant. Man, i got to get better at this. Uh, So I, I think it's interesting that Vega does heroin, and he bought the madman shit it was like twice as much money or whatever the, the additional price was. So he's willing to pay for the quality, but the heroin, he, he injects it with a needle. When Mia finds it, she thinks it's Coke and snorts it. And then Vega drives her frantically to his drug dealer's house and they use a needle to revive her. D- is there a message in that in any way? I never saw one. I don't think so. Cause you know, they give her the adrenaline shot in the heart. Shot? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, it was a drug she was should have used a needle for. She didn't, and then they used a needle to save her. I don't know. Maybe it's nothing, but I just noticed that in my head. Okay. Right on. It's good to notice things. <laughs> I don't know if, 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 if he was making a statement about needles being good. Um, is there any kind of economic things we can talk to about um, the drug use? Uh, it, seemed like, it seemed like Lance had his, his shit in gear. I mean, it's not like... He, um, Vincent got a bad batch because the quality was bad. It seemed yeah, it was like, like Lance was a dependable dealer. This is cared Panda. about his it's product just, being good. Yeah, this is Panda. It's it's fine. It's whatever. But this is the motherfucking madman. And yeah, I mean, he paid more for the challenge against any of the Amsterdam shit. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there was one other thing with um, Lance that I just lost it. Damn it! Why does this happen to me? Uh, is she the one with all the shit in her face? No, that's my wife. Fun, uh, fun note. There was rumored that um, Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love were supposed to play Lance and his wife. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they were still around. Yeah, I don't. It was just rumor. So who knows if that was really true or not? I think uh, I think um, Tarantino denied that rumor. But fun rumor. Yeah, or he was uh, already too high on heroin to show up. Yeah, poor guy. What else do you want to talk about in this movie, Daniel? Oh man, there was something that was kind of fun. Um, I mean, there's the cell phone thing, and I guess the, the style of cell phone back in that time could be picked up on just a more traditional scanner. And so when Vincent Vega called, he's like, are you calling me from a cell phone? And started saying, prank caller, prank caller, to um, not be, I guess, discovered or found out because they're talking about some drug shit over the phone. Right. This is, this is way before Wesley Snipes. I mean, this is before Edward Snowden, you know, before yeah, the NSA. Yeah, for sure. They're still worried about... Yeah, e- eavesdropping and tracing calls and yeah. Oh, yeah. This is what I wanted to to bring up. Uh, Vegas car. It had been in storage while he's in Amsterdam, right? And he's telling Lance some motherfucker motherfucker keyed it. You don't fuck with another man's automobile. And he says, if if I was there and seen him do it, I would have shot him. I would have killed him. So yeah. So is that is that is that going over the line? Do you think? I think it is a bit dis- disproportionate, but uh, yeah, you don't fuck with a man's automobile, man. Why? Why would you key someone's car that's in storage? I mean, that's a total dick move, uh, unless it's a. Um, well, was it in storage or was it when he first got it out? It's it's when he first got it out. In fact, uh, in the timeline in the, in the in the analysis I saw, 
the person that keys his car is Butch. Interesting. Because, you know, the beginning of the movie is the, the Honey Bunny, you know, it's the killing. And then all the, the Mia Wallace and all that stuff is later. Oh, and then there's the bar scene where Butch is talking to Wallace and pack of red apples. What are you looking at, mister? Fuck you. Yeah. That yeah, I ain't your friend. What do, you, what, do you, what do you need, friend, or something like that? What, do you, what are you looking at, friend? He's like, I ain't your friend, Palooka. Right. Yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah that makes so, sense. So, yeah, so the story is that, yeah, the Butch goes out and keys his car right then. Um, yeah, disproportionate, but I guess if it happened a lot, maybe fewer people would key other people's cars, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it it's not like Butch didn't have a reason, I guess. I mean, Vincent was being a dick to him. Maybe maybe Vincent is, is more nice to people because... You know, you shouldn't you shouldn't be dicks to people. I don't know. Yeah, well, he he didn't put two to two together though. When he was talking to Lance, he he said he didn't know who did it. Right. Uh, fun fact though, that car was Quentin Tarantino's car, and it did get stolen during production. <laughs> and it was found like twenty years later um, when some kids were some teenagers were stripping it or something like that, and they found it and they discovered that it was uh, Quentin Tarantino's car. Interesting. Yeah. That's fun. Uh, another interesting thing that it might be a bit dated now, but when um, the wolf is offering them rides home, he asks them what um, area code they live in. Yeah. And that used to delineate, you know, where you were. Uh, and it's kind of lost that meaning now. You can get a phone number from virtually any other area and, you know, everything's cell phones now, everything's mobile, people move around. Um, so now that's sort of lost its uh, connection to those types of things, right? Yeah, except he doesn't ask them for their area codes. He asks them where they live. And one guy says, like, the valley, and the other guy says, like, Inglewood or something like that. And then well, he goes, smell a uh, taxi ride in your future or something like that. Well, doesn't someone say, like, 310 and someone else says uh, whatever that another area code is? Or am I totally fucking this up? I think you're fucking this up, but you could be right. I think it's possible that you're right, but I think you're wrong. Okay. But it's not well, important. It's not important. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's fine. I don't mind being wrong. I'm wrong often, early and often. It's my motto. Be wrong. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, that's what we do here at the Actual Anarchy Podcast. So uh, we're about wrapped up on this movie. you have any other uh, final scenes? And then we can get into our review that we've sort of already given a rating. Uh, what do you think? Uh, final scenes? Um, well, the, 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 the restaurant scene that closes, essentially closes the movie, I think if you've got a guy robbing a restaurant and he's robbing you, I think Jules could have easily just pulled out a gun and blown them both away and he would have been a hero interesting that when he actually is threatened to be killed and actually could legitimately morally defend himself he doesn't but when he just goes around murdering people he's totally fine and he does but when he's actually justified in defending himself he doesn't which is kind of strange and bizarre bass yeah but well there's other things where he was hired to do and this was a situation put upon him so I think there's maybe a distinction in his mind. And he did have that big character arc, that big shift, that divine intervention. Now he's like trying to be the shepherd, right? He's trying to um, take these wayward sheep who are robbing this restaurant and impart some sage-like advice to them. And he even lets them keep the money, right? All the take except for his wallet that says bad motherfucker on it. He's like, yeah, keep everything else. Get out of here. Yeah, which was actually Tarantino's wallet that he had Jackson use for the movie. But yeah, you're right. He wanted to despite, you know, spread his wisdom. He had gone through the shift, and he wanted to start off on this new path, and he saw a reason, a teachable, a teachable moment, so he took it. But it was just interesting. he's just an interesting character. I don't know. He's a terrible psychopath, 
but he's Tarantino writes really interesting characters. So yeah, the dialogue is always snappy and interesting. It reminded me like Kevin Smith was always good with dialogue, and there was a stupid show I used to watch with uh, an old girlfriend, um, Gilmore Girls. It had kind of witty, snappy writing. It was kind of a thing going on back then. Yeah, Joss Whedon does that a bit too. He's pretty good at snappy dialogue. He's not as good as he used to be, I think. I never really watched like Buffy or Angel or any of those things, but um, you know, if you watch Firefly or that kind of crap, which we might want to talk about at some point, but that's the sort of you know, snappy kind of dialogue that um, people try and emulate. I don't know. I think Tarantino's really the master of it. There's nobody else that quite, does it quite like he does. And I'm just a fan of almost all his movies. I mean, I was never a big Jackie Brown fan, but almost everything else he's done has been pretty damn incredible. Yeah, there's a Jackie so, Brown part two, right? With Chili Palmer comes back. I forget what that one is called. There is? What are you talking yeah, I believe, about? I believe so, yeah. He's Chili Palmer in uh, Jackie Brown, right? Who? Travolta. You're thinking about Get Shorty? Oh, Get Shorty. Yep. Sorry. My bad. Yeah. My bad. You are the worst. But there's a Get Shorty part two, but it's called something else. Yeah, yeah. That's not, not, not Quentin Tarantino. Get anyway. Bent. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, for my money, of course, yeah, this is black and gold. If you haven't seen Pulp Fiction, maybe you were born before it came out, but it's still... This movie, it doesn't rely on special effects. It is just evergreen. Um, it ages, you know, like fine wine. Maybe it doesn't have quite the uh, cultural impact, like hitting you, like it did back in the day, because this has all influenced movies ever since then. So you've probably seen similar things or the influences of this. But this is where it started, and not necessarily started. I mean, Tarantino has this encyclopedic knowledge of movie history, and if you go back, and you could probably see all kinds of movies that were influences on him that he just kind of borrows from and puts into his movies. So it's really an amalgamation. It's pretty much what everybody does, but Tarantino specifically kind of wears his influences on his sleeve. Yeah. You see a lot of Western influences and a lot of uh, like samurai style movie influences. Yeah, definitely. Especially in Kill Bill. I mean, it's all it is, but you you see it a little bit here. I mean, he's got the katana and he's got some other elements. Um, Couldn't tell you exactly what, um, is his, uh, is his girlfriend Fabian is, is, she like Asian, like, but she speaks French, so she's from Vietnam, maybe. Who knows what she is? I, I could never, I could never place her. Yeah, I just remember her from wanting the oral pleasure. Yeah, and, but she's and a, pancakes. Yeah, and uh, you know, she has, she's a character that has maybe five minutes of screen time, but Tarantino writes such interesting characters, and that actress did such a great job that she's a very memorable. You, you, I remember her talking about her little pot belly that she wants and how sexy it is to have a pot belly and how she likes blueberry pancakes. And Yeah, you probably remember every line that she said. <laughs> right, and, and she's just this minor little character that the only thing she does in the story is forget to watch. Right. Yeah, the only but... real reason that she even exists is that she, Tarantino needed someone to, for Butch to have to a reason back. to go back and get the watch, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's got to be something to it. There's something to the style of writing that makes it memorable, makes it stand out. And maybe there's a lesson in that. I don't know. I have to think on that a little bit. It's, it's, it is good stuff. Well, I know sure. it's really influenced me um, in my writing, especially. And I know I, I, I hate talking about this because, you know, it's not ready to go and it's been forever. But I am definitely interested in people having conversations that just inform character and not necessarily are dependent upon what's happening on screen or what's happening in the, in the scene. Like you said, or like we said earlier, you know, these are people that 
are just going about their daily lives and they're not going to be talking about their job. They're just not, their job is so rote. It's so they've done it a million times. They're not going to be discussing it. They're going to be talking about something completely different. Now I don't want it. Now when something dramatic happens and holy shit, we need to worry about this thing. I don't want them to continue talking about some bullshit. I want them to talk about, Oh my God, this is maybe going to kill us. This is a real threat. Now, Pulp Fiction gets away with it, and I'm not, and I'm fascinated how they are able to get away with subverting that tension. But um, in general, I like, I like, uh, yeah, I, I love his dialogue, and maybe only he's able to do it. I don't know, but uh, we'll see. We'll see if anybody ever reads my stuff. Um, you can tell me. They can tell me if if it's weird and out of place or if it works. I don't know. We'll see. All right, so they should be able to see a little bit of, of this influence in, in your book when it comes out? Yeah, for sure. There is a bit of, I mean, the characters in my stories are, you know, they're business owners, they're professionals. So they're not necessarily, even though they're doing crazy things, they're not necessarily discussing what they're doing. They're not planning the siege and the heist all the time. They're going, you know, they're going about their daily lives and, you know, this is old hat to them. But, you know, not all the time. They're also discussing what's going to happen a little bit when that's appropriate. But, yeah, I think I'm fascinated by what people would talk about because we all do that in our daily lives. You're not discussing, you know, the job that you're doing all the time necessarily. You're talking about the, the gossip and the hubbub and having two gangsters that are about to kill somebody talking about somebody giving a foot massage. I mean, that's fascinating <laughs> what they're actually interested in you know, as opposed to what they're actually about to do. For a normal person, it would be a traumatic event to go kill somebody. In fact, there are entire movies and stories based around a normal guy being coerced and pressured into going in and performing a hit or helping out a gangster do a job that he or, knows is wrong. Or even accidentally killing someone. Sure. There's all kinds of... It's all dependent upon the character. But we learn that these two hitmen are totally beyond all of those kind of concerns. This is just another day on the job for them. And... Yeah, it's something about Tarantino's ability to create characters that are very, very interesting. They're not standard, typical characters, and that's why this movie stands out and uh, still stands out 20-some-odd years later. All right, so i got to ask you two questions. One is, is this his pinnacle, or has any of his subsequent work measured up to this? And the other question is, what is the one thing that makes this your top movie? Like, what? why does this stand out? Why does this beat out number two? What is number two? And why is this one so much better? Okay, so I'll take that last question first. This movie doesn't stand like a million miles above number two, or even number three or number four or number five. I mean, my top ten is so filled with amazing movies that, you know, they're all kind of mushed in there. Right, I smell a hate there. crime coming on, or an article about your top 10 movies. I think that'd be good. Yeah, you can't... You, they're not miles ahead of each other. There, there's so many great movies that Pulp Fiction isn't... As amazing as it is, it isn't just miles ahead of anybody else, the other people on the list. So, um, now, is this the pinnacle of Tarantino's work? Character-wise, not necessarily. I really, really enjoyed Christoph Holtz's work in Inglorious Bastards. I thought that was the best villain that Tarantino had ever written. His, his characterization of that Nazi officer is amazing. Now, in terms of entire complete movie, that's what gives it the best for me. Uh, Christoph Holtz's work 
as an actor, it's probably the best performance characterization in that villain role in, in that movie. It's the best, but I don't think *Inglorious Bastards* is my favorite Tarantino work. Um, I mean, there's so many good movies that he's made. So many. *Django Unchained* is amazing. Christoph Holtz is. I hope I'm getting that right. Christoph Holtz. No, it's Christoph something or other. Uh, is is amazing in that movie too. Um, there was another question in there. Did did you have a second question? Yeah, it was what makes this number one? Why does it stand out from number two? And you yeah, said okay. it's, it's narrow, but what is the difference maker? Okay, so the, from from Tarantino's second best movie or from my number two? Your number two. Okay, so my number two is The Matrix, the first Matrix. And they're such completely different films that it's in part you know impossible to really compare the two. Uh, the Matrix hit me in a completely different way, a completely different time. Um, the The setting of the matrix, the action of the matrix, the story so different, um, hits me in completely different levels, but Pulp Fiction for all the reasons we've just been talking about for the way it subverts expectation for the way it plays with character for the way it, you know, makes us care about or, or like these terrible people. Uh, it's dangerous to talk about a movie. I, I hate doing movies for this podcast where it's just a bunch of gangsters doing gangster shit. But this is a movie where it's a bunch of gangsters doing gangster shit. And it's fascinating. This is the one movie that you can do that. Because you don't want to talk about a movie where it's just a bunch of bad people and they're all doing bad things and there's no moral character and so there's nothing to really talk about. But this movie does that and yet still you can talk about it from all kinds of different angles. Now, I, I don't know if there's a a really pure hero moral character, but maybe that's what Tarantino's trying to say. Uh, Game of Thrones is another story where there's no real pure moral character. There's all kinds of just shades of gray all over the place, and who's really the good guy and who's really the bad guy? Who knows? Um, but yeah, I guess I, I guess I like those darker movies. I remember being asked this question: Why why is Pulp Fiction your favorite movie? You know, um, isn't that a really dark movie? And I guess it's a fairly dark movie. I think it's. It's got some fairly dark subject matter, but maybe that's what I like. Maybe I like the more gritty, real type stories. I don't want to be pandered to and given kind of crazy. I mean, I like crazy, weird shit too, but and I, I, it's hard to even say that Pulp Fiction is like a realistic movie. It's so stylized and crazy, but there is a, a grit to it, a dirt to it that they're showing me such stylized crazy dirt that it was it was impossible to not look away and uh i don't know i'm just blathering on at this point it's a great film it's my number one um it's not necessarily going to be my number one forever maybe a movie will come along and knock it off and that's great with uh, today's current uh, social justice um graduates coming out and going into hollywood it appears unlikely it's, <laughs> it's probably not likely but maybe we can get some libertarian creators and some storytellers and some screenwriters and some movie producers in there and make some good content. Who knows? I'm optimistic. All right. Well, I, I do like your idea that you got to start grappling with the culture and introducing the ideas in ways that maybe people aren't um, fully aware of it. I, this sounds almost evil, but like you don't want them to go into it knowing it's a libertarian movie. You know what I mean? Like you want to slip it in. You want to kind of get your foot in the door and introduce the ideas and the concepts, but in, in the space of something else. Oh, yeah. You don't want to – I don't think people really go around reading treatises on economics so much. At least the, the average person doesn't. But the average person will watch a movie that happens to have uh, a libertarian theme to it. Yeah, as long as it's got They'll explosions watch. and 
sex in it. Still watch Ghostbusters, which is incredibly libertarian. Yeah. And that's one of the most beloved comedies of all time. And speaking of Ghostbusters, that was one of our episodes, I believe, 17. So actualanarchy.com slash 17. And we're going to have Louis Lieberman, who was with us on that episode, on our upcoming episode, which will be Equilibrium, the Christian Bale film. Yeah, and I got to get on that. I got to watch that movie again. It's been a long time, but that should be a good, good one. Lewis is a good guest, so uh, yeah, tune in for that one for sure. So Daniel, right. what, uh, you already said it was black and gold. Do you want to give your final thoughts? Yeah, it's black and gold all the way for me. Uh, it is a movie that I've seen, you know, dozens and dozens of times. Um, never like super intently watched it. Uh, I probably should have watched it again more intently for, in preparation for this episode. But I already am familiar with a lot of it. I mean, it's one of those movies that I probably quoted for years. Uh, and uh, we exhibited it tonight. Like I was still just throwing out random quotes from the movie. So a lot of it sticks with you. And I think that's a testament to Tarantino's writing style. Um, I've mentioned Kevin Smith. He does a similar thing where he writes memorable uh, conversational text for his characters and it makes it um, really stand out and stick in your head. And Tarantino's great with that, like you were saying. Um, the movie itself, it's its definitely one of my favorites. Um, I don't really have a, a, you know, one, two, three, four, five, or anything like that. But it, it is one that I, it, it's in my well of movies that I go back to and watch again and again. Another one is um, Top Gun, which for whatever reason I now associate with um, Thanksgiving, because a friend of mine would come over and, we would play that really fucking loud and piss off the neighbors because <laughs> I had uh, back in the day, I had some really uh, uh, bumping speakers in my apartment. And so when the jets would take off on the carrier, it would be really, really rumbly. Um, but yeah, just a uh, super good movie, really good characters, lots of interesting things going on. I was a little bit wary about doing this as a show just because there's so much to unpack. I, I sort of felt like it would be, we'd have to pick and choose just certain areas and not really be able to tell the narrative of the, of the film. But, um, I think this actually turned out really well. Uh, uh, people should be familiar with the movie before listening to this, of course. Uh, it's been out for 23 years now, so I, I don't expect you to listen to our show and not have seen this movie. Um, but, yeah, it's it's uh, super good. So black and gold all the way, baby. Cool. Yeah, and uh, tune in for any future episodes. We're going to have, uh, what, Walter Block coming up? Or is this, is, this, is this Walter Block already happened? Well, by the time this comes out, Walter Block will have happened. Uh, it will not be an episode of the Actual Anarchy podcast. It will be a YouTube video and an article on the actualanarchy.com site and YouTube channel. We call the um, little interview things that we do called uh, Anarchy in Action. We've done one such interview thus far, and Walter Block will be our second. And that will already be available by the time you have downloaded this episode of the Actual Anarchy podcast, which can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 39. If you like what we do, you want to support us in any way, check out our tip jar page at actualanarchy.com slash tip jar. We've got all sorts of rewards and other things available for you. All sorts of um, Amazon links, Liberty Classroom links, Read It For Dot Me links, Voodoo links, and a bunch of other stuff, including merchandise and curated content available for purchase from Amazon on our page. Uh, Robert, anything else you want to add at this, at this moment before we wind this down and potentially go into Kathleen Turner Overdrive and turn the frogs gay? This is the critical moment. This is the critical juncture where I try to think of something to say. Where will I? Will, who knows? Am I thinking of something? I'm trying to. This is weird. This happens every time. What do I say? Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, this was a interesting episode. This is not our standard episode. Anytime you're just kind of getting more into the film side of it and the storytelling side of it, 
as opposed to analyzing it from the anarcho-capitalist Rothbardian perspective. It really lets me look at it from my kind of RC storytelling critical analysis side, and that, and that makes me happy. Uh, when you get some kind of like really auteurish piece of meat to really dig into, it's really good. Because uh, a, a lot of movies that we do on the show are great movies, but you wouldn't necessarily put them in the same category, I don't think, as a, a Pulp Fiction. So this was a good one for me. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, tune in next time. Daniel? Same bad time, same bad channel. Good night, folks. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do